0: Good to be here. I'm, I'm glad to have this conversation with you. You're the president and CEO of McCrell International, a Denver based nonprofit education, research and development organization. Uh, you're a former English teacher, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: And a former journalist. And you've been at McCrell for over 20 years. And you previously served as a chief operating officer and director of communications and marketing. And, and you've had several books. You write regularly for educational leadership. I know I've used A couple of your articles. When I taught um, curriculum leadership um, at a university, I've I've used some of your content, and I I appreciate how well you distill down, you know, these these complex ideas into things that are manageable.
1: Appreciate that. That's great to hear.
0: And uh, this book is also, I think, really helps people manage brain-based instruction, uh, learning the sticks of brain-based model for K-12 instructional design and delivery. And you wrote it with Tanya Gibson and Kristen. Rouleau. Uh, Chris
1: Rouleau. Yep. Yeah.
0: And um, yeah, I guess that would just be the first question is just uh, how do you define brain based?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Really, what we were looking at is, is a combination of cognitive psychology. So the science of learning, if you will, and then some neuroscience, but you know, cognitive science has been around like for decades now, and it really started, you know, like in one example, probably one of the earliest studies of cognitive science, And sometimes these are done in laboratories. And so what, what cognitive science tries to do is figure out how do our brains actually process information? So there's something in cognitive psychology called the information processing model. And really this, the six phases are based on that. So I'll give you an example of one of those early studies where they figured out, um, one of the keys to, to, to memory is actually repetition. So they, they figured that out entirely by accident. They were quizzing people to, to see like, when do they forget things. They found that the more they quiz people, the more they actually remembered something. So like, oh, that becomes one of those key principles that comes out of cognitive science that um, quizzing to remember or repetition is the key. Neuroscience, meanwhile, is a newer, newer endeavor, maybe only the last 20 years or so. But in neuroscience, we figure out why that works. So the cognitive science tells us how the brain works Neuroscience often gets down to the, the chemical level of why that works. So for example, with repetition, we know from neuroscience that uh, there's a substance called myelin that's basically a fatty substance that's in, that wraps itself around our neurons, kind of an insulating, like an electrical wire. Well, that means those neurons can start to fire together better. So we now know from, con- from neuroscience why what we found out in cognitive science actually works. So we've been combining both of those things. Um, in this book to hopefully provide teachers with with the clear sense of like, how does this process of learning actually happen in my own brain, but more importantly, in my students' brain, so we can design learning accordingly.
0: Yeah, I remember that in your book too, that you've um, mentioned that often instructional plans are designed more from a teacher perspective, like what kind of strategies do I want to use to teach this content? And, And you're suggesting that recommending that we think from the student's perspective, what's going to benefit them the most? Yeah. To learn the content and the
1: yeah. Yeah. I think that's a key paradigm shift that is you start to think about students' brains and what's happening there. One example is like you know learning objectives. Well, we all know we have to have learning objectives. We put them on the board, but that's like a tree falling in the woods with no one to hear. If the students don't actually take that learning objective and make it their own learning goal, and so as we think about what has to happen in students' brains, we go, oh, that's students need to set a goal so that we also know from brain science when they achieve a goal, they get a dopamine hit, right? So there's a, a reward that makes learning fun, enjoyable, even addictive in all the right ways, right? So, right.
0: Yeah, yeah so um, the structural design and delivery, what,
1: how does that look different when you overlay it with a brain-based model? Yeah. So in addition to thinking about you know, what what's happening in my students' brains, we also want to make sure then that we don't skip a step, or that we don't move on if, if we realize our kids aren't making sense of this, we need to give them more time to make sense of learning. That's, that's the fourth phase of learning. But the the six phases basically are this: the first phase is saying let's get kids interested in learning. That's the first thing that has to happen because um, there's a million distractions. Our brains are really good at ignoring stuff. Um, and there's a pecking order that they follow, and and believe it or not, turn turn in your books to page 42 is nowhere on that pecking order of interest for kids. So we have to make learning interesting. We have to make the environment feel emotionally safe too. Emotions are the first trigger. Um, so once we feel safe to learn, then we want to be interested in learning. So that's the first phase. The second phase is we know that our brains are kind of inherently lazy. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, one of the one of the giants in the field of cognitive science, writes about this that. You know, learning is a lot of effort. We have to power on our brains. People that are listening to this podcast right now, you're having to keep your brain powered up. This is probably more difficult than say, listening to music, right? So your brain has to stay powered up. That means we need to convince our brains all the time, hey, keep paying attention. So that's where goal setting becomes so important, right? That we have to tell our brains, hey, this is important enough that I need to stay focused on this. The next phase is really focusing on new learning. We've learned a lot of things from cognitive science about it's called dual coding. Um, that we process information better when it's visual and it's verbal. So those we think about what that focus on new learning phase looks like. Then we know that our brains always work by connecting new learning with prior learning. So we need to give kids the opportunity to process their learning in, in small groups oftentimes, or through their own reflection and writing, but give kids a chance to process learning then we know that repetition is the key. Like I mentioned, myelin, right? We got to give kids opportunities to repeat um, over time, not cramming. Cramming leads just to fast learning and fast forgetting. And then ultimately, and this is I think what's missing in a lot of classrooms, and maybe this is the biggest difference with really designing learning with the brain in mind, is that extension application activity, right? So Um, We have to actually not just repeat information, but come at it from different angles and like oh now i'm going to take this new learning and i'm going to apply it to solve a problem or i'm going to do. Some creative synthesis of this or i'm going to do a writing project or a research project and extend and apply is really key. And that's what overcomes what you know um, john medina writes about this that students typically forget about 90% of what they've learned in the classroom within 30 days well it's because we don't provide that final phase of learning so. I think that's how learning looks different if we're thinking about the brain and saying well it's not just about teaching something kids study it. we give them a test that's going to lead to fast forgetting how do we really design learning that that keeps kids brains actively engaged throughout the entire process
0: a lot of the shifts you suggest in there too are are not huge shifts like you said it's just maybe adding a visual with the text and that helps cement some of that knowledge into your long-term memories Exactly. yeah What about content, like, (laughs) no matter how hard you might work, there's just maybe certain content or skills that just kids aren't going to find relevant. I mean, do you ditch it? Do you reformat it? I mean, how do you deal with that situation? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think about myself as an English teacher. Um, I remember teaching the Scarlet Letter to kids. I was in the Virgin Islands, and, like, trying to get them to relate to this, like, and honestly, I didn't have it figured out. I didn't have, we talk about the, um, we use a marketing term called what's in it for me. The WIFM is the acronym, what's in it for me. And if you don't have that figured out, it's really difficult to teach something. And honestly, I think I think back of the travesty that I perpetrated on my kids trying to teach the Scarlet Letter when I didn't actually know what's in it for them. Why should they read the Scarlet Letter? I was like, you know, Puritans are interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but had I thought about it, and sometimes where you get to that with them is, what's the enduring understanding? What is it that I want them to learn when they're 18 that they'll remember when they're 80? Um, Thinking about how do adults apply this in the real world? And you know, and honestly, if you come to the answer, like, you're not bereft, if you don't read the scarlet letter, maybe you cut it out and say it's not really important anymore um, to teach. Um, Or if you do, it's like you're thinking about those those key themes, those key ideas that I really want kids to be thinking about. And so I think, you know, with mathematics or science, there's some practical application, but you really do have to get to why, why do adults learn this stuff? And why is it important for you to know? And if you can't answer that question, I think it is really difficult to do that. So there may be um, moments of reflection. I've, I've seen teachers in workshops where we do this, you know, having maybe an existential crisis, like why do I teach acid theory, right? I need to figure this out. And if I don't have it clear, I know my kids won't figure it out. So um i think short answers you have to dig deep and figure what is why is this important to teach and if you honestly can't answer the question then you probably should talk to colleagues and others and say why are we teaching whatever it might be
0: that's a good point too if you don't just assume there's not a not some kind of an enduring understanding of theme you know to, to take them time to to look into it but yeah um kind of walked us through you know the the, the phases of um a brain-based model how do we know do we know that these phases that you know support student growth and achievement um, yeah
1: yeah that's a really good question in fact so something that, that we've done a bit in the book learning that sticks but also we're actually doing right now i'll forecast something we are re-examining research that supports um a title we've had out there for quite a while called classroom instruction that works so we're looking now at empirical studies and here's what we can find um from empirical research in classrooms that Something like goal setting has tremendous effect sizes um, uh, for for learners, and so it, it is getting kids to set their own personal goals to track their own progress, and so we know that works as a classroom instructional strategy. If you understand how the brain works, then you see why that would work. Right now, I understand. Oh, um, I'm helping kids get those dopamine hits, right when they when they achieve a goal, or I'm helping them and sometimes set small goals so that every day they're moving, they're making progress towards where they want to get to. Um, and I'm helping their brains say, "Hey, hey, this is important. Stay, stay focused. Stay, you know, persevere. You know, productive struggle." So we do actually know, kind of at each step along the way, and that's in the book we have provided those evidence-based strategies that say, "We also know, for example, like cueing cognitive interest or getting kids, you know, interested in their learning has tremendous effect sizes." Also, we actually know from from um, uh, neuroscience why that is true because. Um, again, there's a dopamine reward when, you have, when you're curious about something and you solve your curiosity resolve your curiosity, you get a dopamine hit. We also know neuroscience studies have found this, that we tend to learn things that, that are, are, are even unintentional. Like there's accidental learning that happens. It seems that somehow curiosity primes our brains for learning, so we learn more. So um, we can see both from like laboratory studies that are cognitive science studies, but also classroom studies, why each of these phases are really important
0: you've you've spoke about this spoken about this already of just why we need to get kids first interested and committed to learning um and just maybe tweaking that question then um just what we've noticed in our schools and i think other educators are noticing this too is um kids have had a harder time getting back into um independent reading writing even like holding a pencil for younger kids because they just haven't had that practice and any ideas of what as we as educators can do to, to get them reinterested and recommitted to to some of these more independent and kind of solitude-centered, I guess, yeah. activities, in a like you said, in a world of connections. Yeah. Um, that's That's been a challenge for us. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that's where also goal setting is really important. We, t- we work with schools a lot on making the shift from learning objectives to success criteria, and it, that's not a new idea, but for a lot of teachers, it, it's not until I define, well, how will I know when kids know it? How will they know when they know it? Um, and that usually then also kind of forces that question about, so why are we asking kids to learn this? And I think we do need to spend time um, helping them become interested in learning. There, there are also things we know from studies, like what does peak curiosity? Well, things like mysteries, right? Trying to solve a mystery. So sometimes we might want to flip history around, like, why did the Roman Empire fall? Let's figure that out, right? When actually there's there's a debate. That's the other strategy that creates curiosity is controversy. When kids realize that historians still don't agree 2,000 years later why Rome fell, um, or just 1,700 years later. Um, so that's we can use controversy. We can use things like cognitive conflict when something doesn't quite square with our expectations. I, I live here in Denver, Colorado. An interesting thing that, that happens in the wintertime is when the wind is blowing out of the mountains, it actually makes Denver warmer. It's a you know, Chinook winds. Well, that seems contrary to what we would think because it's cold in the mountains. Why does that work? Right? So, posing those con those those cognitive conflicts, I think also we can we can use um uh like just even suspense, right? Literature is full of suspense or or a science experiment. What do you think is going to happen? I actually write about this um in some of my books. My daughter Molly, who's now a freshman in high school, years ago, I think she was in second grade snowy morning here in denver she's coming down the stairs as i'm going up the stairs and she asked dad is it a school day you know I, i'm thinking she wants it to be a snow day and i have to inform her we're in denver so it's going to have to snow sideways before it's a snow day right so like wisconsin i'm sure i um so i said no it's still a school day and i thought she'd be dejected and, and you know bummed out but she pumps her fish she's like oh, she's excited right she can't wait to go to school and it wasn't because of the cafeteria or seeing friends it was like they were doing an overnight science experiment. It was that suspense that made her want to come back to school. So I think what we have to recognize is that our kids' brains these days have more distractions than ever, right? There's so much media that's out there. We have to figure out how do we cut through all the noise with the signal that makes them say, this is interesting, right? The good news is that we don't have to teach curiosity kids. We're all born curious. And so if we can tap into that, that's a good way to start the whole process. And then you build in the rest of the entire, you know, those six phases of learning, but I think to your point, I mean, if you skip that first, get kids interested, the train leaves the station without them, right? So we want to figure, and it, it's worth spending some time doing that. And honestly, that tends to be more of a collaborative activity. Teachers should come together, and say, how do we hook kids' interest in you know American literature or American history, or whatever it is. That's what I used to teach, right? So how do you how do you get kids' interested in that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the. I hear the three Cs, curiosity, controversy, controversy and conflict.
1: So, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and, you know, and, and it's um, productive conflict, right? So, like, you know, another great example is like using, um, you know, should we list the wolf as an endangered species? You know? And so mm-hmm. you can hear what, you know, environmentalists have to say about that. You can hear what ranchers have to say about that. That's actually a study that was done and found kids were so interested in learning about the wolf in that, in that, you know, frame they would stay in from recess to watch a film and to learn more about it. So, um, cause we all wanna sort out ideas in our, in our minds and where do we stand on this? So I, I think instead of shying away from controversy, there are certainly some very productive um, conversations kids can have around controversies.
0: You can weave in reading, writing, speaking, and listening if you're- Absolutely. I'll build it in debate. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, that would be a relevant uh, topic here in Wisconsin too. Yeah, yeah. Um. So just kind of the final question is, you know, what does this look like? Um, you, you work with schools, work with teachers. Um, you know, uh, what do you see when you see teachers engaging in this uh,
1: brain-based model for instructional design? Yeah, I think one of the key things that happens, Matt, is um, its intentionality. Teachers become metacognitive in their practices. I think about you know my first year as a teacher. You would have seen me doing some of the right things, right? I, I, cooperative learning. But if you'd ask me, Brian, why are you doing cooperative learning? I'd say um, I've been lecturing all week, <laughs> I, know. I need to do something different. Um, and that's not why we do cooperative learning. Um, it's, not, it's not cooperative Wednesdays, right? It's, it's. I'm at a point in the learning process where I want my kids to pause and process together and make sense of their learning. So I think that's the first key shift is teachers become more intentional. I think something else that we see oftentimes though is while there are, are six phases and several teaching strategies that, that, that hang under each, sometimes schools will say, we just need to focus on one thing right now. And sometimes it is those success criteria. Let's be really clear about why we're asking kids to learn this and how we'll know that they've got it, how they will know they've got it. And it is it is those I can statements, but embedded with this idea of what's in it for me. So we find that sometimes it's great for, for schools or teachers to have the overall model in their minds, but then say, we're going to work on one phase right now. That seems to be where learning is breaking down. That's another way to think about this is like, when learning is breaking down or doesn't seem to be happening, is it because kids aren't interested? So if, if so, maybe we start there. Is it because, no, we, we got their attention, but they don't seem to stay focused. We're going we're to think about that commit to learning phase or wherever it may be breaking down. So sometimes it becomes a really great diagnostic tool as well. Just when, if, if learning isn't happening the way we think it should, what, what phase do we miss? You know, when did the train leave the station without the kids? And let's go back and make sure we got that figured out.
0: I remember uh, using the classroom instruction that works book for professional learning in my first stint as an administrator as an assistant principal We that we followed what you mentioned. Now that you mentioned it. Um, we, I think there were like nine correct. That's right. Yeah. So we focused on three per year over a three year period and yep. then within that a teacher could pick one.
1: Yeah, you know, right. Really
0: made it right. personalized, but also school wide and, and we're kind of moving together.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a great strategy to have PLCs come together, or grade level of teams come come together to say, now let's get really good at this one particular phase of learning, because we think right now it's it's the biggest biggest inflection point for us if we can do this well, consistently and intentionally.
0: Well, your book lays it out very nicely in learning that sticks, a brain-based model for K-12 instructional design and delivery. Um, where can we learn more about your work, Brian?
1: Yeah, just, just come to our website, www.mcrel.org. There are a lot of free resources. There's, in fact, a free download that relates to this book. Um, you can find lots of materials there. Um, you'll find me there as well, so you can reach out to me. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions and, and uh, to, to chat with folks about this work.
0: And you also have a course, e-course, that goes with this
1: too. That's that correct. Was, yes, we have an uh, online course that, that provides a, an overview of this, and we've designed it also really to be effective professional learning. So ideally, you know, teams would come together, do the e-course, but then have a chance to meet together so that one of the things we talk about is the importance of processing learning in a group. So we've designed the e-course that way too.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I saw you had some discussion boards in there. And so trying to um, practice what you preach, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. That's right. Modeling the uh, modeling the practice too. So. Okay.
0: Well, thanks, Brian. It was good to talk to you. And, and uh, I encourage everyone to check out this book.
1: And so, thank you so much, Matt, for the opportunity, and I look forward to hearing from uh, from listeners too.